Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Galatians, chapter 3, uh, beginning in verse 15, but going all the way through chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Um, and just kind of a comment on that. Uh, the Reformation was a return to the scriptures, is one of the things it was about. And so this morning we're going to read a good chunk of the scriptures together. Uh, so again, this is chapter 3 of Galatians, beginning in verse 15. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. And so the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be, would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus you were all sons of God through faith. For as many as you, of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And If a son, then an heir through God. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. 
And I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of the blessing you felt? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose. And not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth, until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son. For the son of the slave woman shall, ha- shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. This is the word of the Lord. Grace and peace to you this morning from God who is our Father and from Jesus who is the Christ of God. Amen. So you may already know this, but the reason that we commemorate the Reformation on the last Sunday in October is on October 31st, 1517, a guy named Martin Luther dressed up as a monk for Halloween. Or maybe he was a monk, I don't know. Uh, But either way, on October 31st, he went out and nailed 95 theses to the castle church door in Wittenberg, Germany. So as I mentioned in the community update, that's typically considered the start of the Reformation. Now what the 95 theses were, they were essentially little points of debate about theology. 
And when Luther posted them, he thought they would just start a conversation, and in doing so, that the church would just go back to being more biblical. So one thing about this, when it came to Luther and really any of the reformers, they had no interest in starting a new church. That just wasn't their goal. Their goal was to get the church to go back to what it's meant to be. And so I think you could say their goal was actually relatively modest, and yet I think the reason the Reformation has had such enduring impact, or you could even say enduring power, is the same issues that it was trying to address back then are issues you have in the church all the time. In fact, in that reading from Galatians, which is rather long, uh, the issues were the same in the early church too. And it also seems like, it seems like it's the same issues that the church faces right now. And just to be clear, kind of as a caveat, I don't mean by that, those other people are always messing things up. No, I don't mean that. What I mean is we ourselves are always prone to mess things up. And so what I want to do today is I want to look at three major issues that are almost always at stake in the church. So these are things that Christians, for whatever reason, tend to lose sight of, even though they're absolutely central to our faith. So to start with the first one, the first one is the nature of the church, is what I'm going to call it. In other words, what makes the church the church? In order to get at that, I want you to imagine there was a hospital that was founded by this incredible doctor. He was known for eradicating a number of diseases. He could heal just about anyone. He advanced the cause of medicine in ways that had never been seen before. And so as his crowning achievement, or nothing, or as something, or as, sorry, I'm losing my train of thought. As his crowning achievement, or his, as an extension of his life's work, he founded this hospital. So for several generations after he died, the hospital had this beautiful reputation. Everyone in the community knew it as the place to go in order to get healed. And yet what happened is over time, things started to change. In particular, the mission of the hospital started to get lost. Sometimes that happens when an organization ages, does it not? Starts to forget why it exists, and that's what happened here. So when it came to the CEOs, if I can speak about them, all they started to care about was building bigger buildings. They just wanted to expand the campus footprint of the hospital. And then when it came to the doctors, they became less and less interested in medicine and healing. And over time, it seemed like all they really cared about was talking about health. So they'd sit around and talk about health using this medical jargon that no one else could understand. And the irony was they had pretty much stopped healing anyone. And so clearly there were some real issues. But you see, what was tricky is everyone on staff, from the CEO of the entire hospital, right down to the doctors down on the floor, they all still looked like doctors. So everyone still wore the white coat. They all walked around with stethoscopes around their neck. They all wrote things down in ways that no one else could read it. It's supposed to be a joke. Uh, so they appeared to be doctors, right? And yet in the community around them, diseases ran rampant, and the hospital did almost nothing to help. So let me ask you, is that still a hospital? I don't know. It seems kind of tricky. 
if we can continue in this illustration, eventually what happens is a few of the doctors on staff start uncovering the fact that something has gone awry. You see, they were reading the hospital's founding documents, and they were starting to realize that the hospital now looked almost nothing like it was originally intended. And so all they started to do was they started to get the hospital going to go back to its original intent. That it would not be about gaining power or making money, a la the CEOs, nor to be about talking about health in a language no one could understand, a la the doctors on the floor, but that it would actually be about healing people. And so they started doing that. And at the same time, they started calling on the hospital as a whole to do that, all of which was much needed. And yet, what do you think happened? They got fired. They got pushed out of the hospital. So what they did, born out of necessity, is they set up their own little practice right across the street. And you see, all they were doing was bringing back the methods of the founding doctor. There was nothing controversial about it, but the huge hospital sitting still across the way, they just kept telling them, you are not a real hospital. And they tell all the patients, everyone who was sick in the town, that's not a real hospital. We're the real hospital. We're the ones who wear the right white coats. We're the ones who have the credentials. We're the ones who were founded by the great physician, is what they would say. So again, what makes a hospital a hospital? Is it having the founder's name on the building? Or is it having the founder's spirit in your practice? Those are two different things. Is it just about looking the part of a hospital Or is it about doing the work and actually healing people? So during the Reformation, this was a huge debate. Not about what makes a hospital a hospital, but what makes a church a church. See, Jesus is the great physician, and when he came, he healed people. Not just literally, he set them free from the disease of sin. He applied grace to the wounds of shame. He gave people different hearts and minds and he put them on a path toward healing and wholeness of life. And so then as an extension of his life's work, he founded the church. You see, at least for a period of time, the church had this beautiful reputation had this incredible ministry of changing people's lives. Almost everyone in the community knew that's where you go to be healed, to be saved. And yet what essentially happened is the church just started to forget why it existed. Over time, the quote-unquote CEO, which is the Pope in this illustration, and I'm not all about bashing the Pope, I promise, just an illustration, uh, but at the time of Luther, he seemed to know a lot about how to build bigger buildings. It's when the Vatican was built. He knew how to build bigger buildings, but did not know how to heal broken souls. The doctors down on the floor, which are the priests and pastors of the church, they seemed to talk all about spiritual health, and yet they almost always spoke in theological jargon that no one understood. And on top of that, they rarely, if ever, healed anyone. And so at a certain point, people started to notice. People like Martin Luther and John Calvin and Philip Melanchthon, a bunch of other reformers whose names don't really matter, they started reading the quote-unquote founding documents, namely the Bible. And what they noticed is the church they were part of looked nothing like the church as God intended it. And so all they were doing, they started implementing changes. 
And they started calling on the church as a whole to change. And in their own ministry, people were coming to know the grace of God. And they were being healed, and they were being saved, and they were being changed. And yet the church, they hated it. And so they essentially told them, get out. Or you're fired, to use the language of earlier. So what they did, what the reformers did, is they just set up a little practice right across the street. Little churches where the gospel was being taught again, to which the Pope and the big church out of Rome responded, you are not a real church. We're the real church. We're the ones who wear the right clothes. We're the ones who have the religious credentials. We're the ones who can trace our lineage all the way back to the great physician. And you know, maybe that's true. But if you're not healing anyone, who cares? Because you see, what makes a church a church is that it heals people. Not the name on the building, not the credentials of the leaders, not even perhaps the beautiful history of the institution. Now, what makes a church a church is the fact that the ministry of Jesus Christ is being done in that place. And as a result, people are being saved by the gift of grace. That's what constitutes the church. So let's go to the second thing. The first issue that we're almost always forgetting is the nature of the church. The second issue is the truth of the gospel. So at the church we were at previously, this is out in Pittsburgh, I I almost always taught confirmation. And one thing I always did with the kids is for this one lesson, I would walk up to one of the kids, and they're sitting down, so I'm like standing up above them. And I would walk up and I would just go, give me ten dollars. Be like, what? I'd stand there and go, give me $10. I'm supposed to get $10 today. And they would just be looking at me like, wait, what? I didn't get that memo. I don't have $10. And I keep saying, you're supposed to have $10. Give it to me now. And so you go to different kids, and the most, kid any, the most any kid would have would be like 2 to $3 of lunch money. And so they don't have $10. So then what I would do is I would take out my wallet, and I would give them $10 of my own money. And then I would say, okay, give me $10. Now the issue is most of the kids refuse to give it back. (laughs) In which case the entire illustration would fall apart. And yet if they do give it back, that illustrates the difference between what the Bible calls law and grace. You see, law is everything that tells us what God wants. It's something we see in Scripture, learn God's law there. It's also just written on our conscience. God's laws, that he wants us to live a certain kind of way. He wants us to have a specific kind of heart, and in particular, he created us to look and live our life like Jesus Christ himself. That's whose image we were originally made in. And so when it comes to law, God is essentially standing above us and saying, give me that. Give me ten dollars, meaning give me the life of Christ. Give me a pure mind with no evil or impure thoughts. Give me an affectionate heart full of love for me and my name. That's what I created you to give me. And maybe we're digging through our inner wallet, pretending like someday we're going to find it, but if we're just being honest, we don't have it. It's part of the fall. We lost our capacity to give God what he wants. 
And so in our passage from Galatians, it refers to God's law as a, quote, guardian or manager, meaning it just manages our sin. It doesn't solve the problem. It just puts restraints on it and prevents it from getting too out of hand. So that's God's law. And I'll just say it's incredibly important, God's law. And yet here's the thing about that. Jesus Christ did not come just to give us more law. He came to give us grace. And by grace, I don't mean just an excuse for our sin. That's sometimes how grace gets portrayed. But by grace, I mean Jesus Christ came to give us himself. And so instead of God just standing above us making demands, give me your Christ-like life, in the gospel God says, here. Here's the life of Christ. He gives it to you as a gift. He puts it into you by faith. And now when he says, give me a Christ-like life, we just offer back what he's given to us. Even all the mess that's still there in that offering, the sin and the failure that's still clinging to us, that we can't seem to get rid of even though we want to, even that is still covered by the blood of Christ. So you see, right before the Reformation, I think you see this in every age, but right before the Reformation, you would hear a lot about what God required. And yet you would hear very little about what God gives. Or to use the words of our illustration from earlier, you would hear a lot about what it looked like to be healthy. And yet you rarely heard about the grace that could heal you. And so the Reformation was about the truth of the gospel, that God is not just a demanding confirmation teacher, that it's better to hide from and avoid, but rather he is a loving father who out of his own resources wants to pour into our hearts the very life he's always wanted us to live. So let's go to the third thing. The question that kind of comes out of that second point is if the gospel is a gift, then how do we get it? Do we need to do something? Do we just sit back and do nothing? How does the life of Christ actually take form in us? So I mentioned before, this was a few months back, that for a period of time, Christy and I were struggling uh, with infertility. Uh, We really wanted to have kids, but we just couldn't get pregnant. It was a hard time. So what I haven't mentioned is during that same time, I started to feel, in regards to this, a ton of pressure. I don't think this is uncommon with people in this situation, but that somehow something about us was wrong, right? And we weren't able to figure it out. The doctors couldn't figure it out. And so I was spending a ton of time looking stuff up on the internet. And if you ever do that, I'm just going to tell you, it's not a good idea. A, you start imagining you have some rare disorder that one in eight million people have. And B, even if you don't imagine that, it just puts even more pressure on the situation which rarely, if ever, helps. And so for Lent of 2019, I decided I was going to give up the internet for 40 days. I would still check email. That's kind of critical to some of the work that I do. uh, But nothing else would I go on there for. And you see, the main reason for that is I wanted to take the pressure off the situation. 
And I'll be honest, I just really figured when I did this that in doing this, if God wants us to have kids, either we're going to get pregnant or we're going to adopt. Or maybe both. (laughs) But in either case, I trust that God's will is going to be done and more so that we are going to be blessed in and through that will. And so here's the thing about that. I think you could say what I was essentially giving up for Lent was unbelief. In particular, I was not going to just rely on myself anymore. I was going to trust God with the whole thing. And some of you know the story about this that I told a few months back, but it was almost too fitting that at the end of Lent, so end of the internet fast on Easter Sunday, we got a positive pregnancy test. I don't want to be misheard about this. I'm not saying if you have faith in God, he'll give you whatever you want. And if you're not getting it, you just don't have enough faith. No, come on. That's just not true. A lot of people who have no faith at all get pretty much everything they want in life. And on the flip side, a lot of people who have a deep and abiding trust in God have a life of unfulfilled dreams. And so I'm not saying by faith we can somehow force God to give us what we want. It doesn't work that way. But what I am saying is by faith we can lay hold of what God already wants to give. And I don't mean physical children, although that can be one of God's gifts for some of his people. But you see, what I really mean is the life of Christ put into us. That's the gift he wants everyone to have. So the thing is, prior to that Lent, It wasn't just a kid that I couldn't produce. It was also Jesus Christ himself. Give me a Christ-like life. That's the demand. And I couldn't do it. I didn't have it. And yet when I trusted the will of God, regardless of whether we got pregnant, the life of Christ began to be formed in me. I had the peace of Christ. I had the patience of Christ. I had the growing sense of the presence of Christ. All of which begs the question, how? How is this happening? Was I doing something and no? Now you see, I was just believing something. In particular, I was believing a promise. So if we go to Galatians, we're going to jump in there. Paul's talking about how he wants Christ to be born in the hearts and minds of his people. He's in the anguish of childbirth, he says, until Christ is formed in you. And in order to illustrate how that happens, he brings up the story of Abraham and Sarah. If you're familiar with it, uh, what, God ha- or what happens is God made a promise to Abraham that he was going to have a child, and through that child, all the nations of the earth were going to be blessed. And you see, whereas Abraham seemed to believe it at first, which is why we call him the father of faith, which is kind of weird, because pretty quickly he lost faith. And he started to fall into this mindset like, I don't know. It seems like if this is going to happen, if God's will is going to be fulfilled in my life, I've got to do it myself. And so taking matters into his own hands, he goes and he sleeps with Hagar, which is not his wife, Sarah's wife. Hagar is his slave. And what is born out of that embrace is a kid named Ishmael. And what the Bible says about Ishmael is he's, quote, a wild, not going to say it, donkey of a man. It says, wild donkey of a man is what Ishmael is. And so that's in Genesis. But here's the point Galatians is making with it. It's when you act like everything depends on you. That was Abraham. Acting like everything 
depended on him. And when you do that, first of all, what you're doing is you are embracing slavery. That's Hagar. So we embrace slavery. And second of all, what comes out of that is Ishmael, meaning what comes out of that is a lot of strife. And so what this passage is saying is God's plan is, in fact, to have Christ born in us. That's the promise. And yet if we bank everything on our performance, all we will produce is Ishmael. Our life will be full of frustration, contention, and worry. And so what do you do? How do you get Jesus instead of Ishmael? You stop depending on your performance. That's what this is saying. And you start trusting in God's promise. What's his promise? His promise is that his will for you is perfect. That your sin has been atoned for. That your shame is undone. That your death is defeated. That there's nothing to fear. In life and in death, nothing to fear. That your God absolutely loves you. And will give you every grace you could ever need. That's the promise of the gospel. And if we would just believe it, something new would be born in us. And that's what I want to call this morning the efficacy of faith. I thought about calling it the power of faith, but I like the word efficacy. And something that's efficacious just means that it's effective at producing the desired result. And so saying that faith is efficacious just means faith alone. You don't have to add anything to it, just faith, trust in God's promise alone. You take God's promises, you sink your teeth into them. That alone can take our inner Ishmael, whose life is full of strife, and turn it into an Isaac, whose heart is full of peace. So that is what is at stake not just back in the 1500s, but now. Uh, The nature of the church, that it's a hospital for sinners. The truth of the gospel, that God doesn't just want a Christ-like life, but that he actually gives us the life of Christ. And the efficacy of faith. That when we believe in the promise of God, that is how the healed and holy life of Christ starts to take shape in us. So you see, it's not just the Roman Catholic Church that can lose its way. So too can any branch of Christianity. So too can any given congregation. And most importantly, so too can any individual Christian. And what it always boils down to is what do you rely on? What do you rely on? The Lord whose promise never fails or yourself whose performance is always uneven. So let's pray as our worship team comes forward this morning. Father in heaven, we just give you thanks this morning. We give you thanks for the gospel. This good news in Christ Jesus that it actually does not depend on us but instead entirely on you. Such good news. And God, this is something we claim as part of our heritage as a church, and yet at the same time, it is something we are so prone to forsake as individuals. And so, Father, we pray this morning, turn our hearts to your promise that we would embrace what you say to us.
and in doing so have Christ himself born and formed in us. It's in his name that we pray and all God's people said, amen.